The first text this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 4, the second from Hebrews 13, and the third from Philippians 2. These are the words of God. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Hebrews says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Then Philippians says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have of gathering around your word and under the authority of your spirit. I pray that your spirit would be at work in our lives, in our hearts, teaching and admonishing and encouraging us to do what we ought to do in response to this word. And Father, we ask this, we pray for this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. For those of you who are new to our community, one of our customs is at somewhere around the end of the year or the beginning of the new year, I give a state of the church uh, message, and this is that message. Sometimes the state of the church uh, message addresses sort of the national or the international situation generally, and sometimes it has to do, the message has to do with life in this congregation, life on the ground, life uh, where we live. And this uh, message is predominantly the latter. I'm going to be talking about our local situation, uh, but I'm going to be doing it in the light of the broader situation, and I hope this comes together as we proceed. We do live in troubled times. We live in troubled times, certainly, and a regular response to those troubles that many rank-and-file Christians have can be seen in the lament, but what can we do? What can we do? You, um, there seems to be this uh, massive, uh, mass insanity has gripped our leaders, our parliaments, our congresses, our elected representatives, our unelected representatives. Everybody seems to have lost their minds all at once. And, and here you are uh, looking up and down. I, this doesn't make sense what they're doing. This doesn't make sense what they're requiring. And, but how, I'm just a little pipsqueak. I'm just a little nothing voice out in the wilderness. How can, what can I do? What can I do? And that's what I want to talk about. What can each person here do? What can we do that is an effective biblical response to the international frenzy that's going on? So this year, our annual State of the Church message is going to set before you a very local response to a very global and international panic, not to mention all the totalitarian solutions that are being presented to us. We've had, uh, our, our leaders have fomented a panic, they have created a panic, and then they are rushing forward to offer solutions to the panic that they have created. We are the solution. No, you are the problem. But we don't, oftentimes we say, I know that you're not the solution, I know that you're the problem and not the solution, but what is the solution? And then you say, well, Jesus, right? Jesus is the solution. Right, okay, got it. That's a Sunday school answer. How? How is Jesus the solution to the very practical problem that you see, the very practical problems that you see in your newsfeed? So, as it happens, the scriptures that we're going to consider today 
The, the scriptures that we're going to bring to bear are scriptures that are equally pertinent to our local and national situations both. Now this is really striking and this is why there's an odd juxtaposition and kind of a weird schizophrenia in this situation. Because if we zoom out, if we zoom out, we see that things have never been, at least in my lifetime, quite so bad as they are now. Things seem to have, not only uh, you expect, if you're a believing Christian, if you believe the Bible, you always expect people out there to be not following the Bible and doing it their own way. That's always been the case. But you don't expect everyone out there to have set their hair on fire and to be totally out of it, just completely bonkers. I, I've never seen anything quite so bad, right? So if we zoom out, things, everybody's lost their mind. That's not, that can't be good. If we zoom in, however, if we zoom in, looking at our own local community of believers, things have never been so good. Things have never been so good. We've never been, we have never experienced the quality and the quantity of the blessings that we've been receiving over the last few years. So you zoom in, things have never been so good. Zoom out, everybody's crazy, right? Zoom out, everybody's crazy. And one of the reasons why things are uh, such a blessing for us here is because people are fleeing places where they've gone nuts, right? They've, they've, um, many people have been chased here by uh, governors and leaders who don't have a good grasp of how the world's supposed to make sense. So what should we do with this? We can't just stare at it and, and be content with a schizophrenic approach. All right, locally things are good. Nationally things are nuts. What do we do? Well, what do we do? How, how, do we, how can we prepare? And that brings us to our texts. These three texts taken together might be described as social exhortations, social exhortations. They have to do with our life together, with our social interactions, our dealings with one another, and they warn us of the kind of sin that disrupts our fellowship with one another. You get hundreds of Christians, hundreds of sinners, all together in one big room, what can go wrong? Well, as soon as we start talking to each other, as soon as we start doing business with each other, as soon as somebody tries to court somebody and it gets shut down or somebody, you know, all kinds of things, everything goes, everything goes wrong. People start trying to deal with each other. If we were all in a, in a regiment, marching shoulder to shoulder, and we never had to cross one another's paths, we just had to all go in a straight line, we might get by okay. But this is what way more complicated. This is a complicated dance. And everybody here has to deal with the others here. And there are problems that come up in those interactions. So Peter tells us to be hospitable to one another. And he tells us to do this without grumbling or complaining. That's verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Be hospitable and no grumbling. The reason for warning us about this is that hospitality gives rise to occasions where you want to grumble and complain. As soon as, if, if you didn't have to deal with anybody, everything's fine. I would do great in my Christian life if I didn't have to deal with anybody. I'd be a saint. Well, as soon as you start dealing with other people, see, the problem is you're being a saint, and everybody else you're dealing with, they, they're not trying so hard. They're, they're not being the kind of saint that they need to be to help you in your Christian life. 
So you start dealing with other people and occasions arise where you want to grumble or complain. You had them over and they didn't invite you back or they didn't wipe their feet or they didn't say thank you or they didn't do all three. You had them over, you did your part, the ball's in your court and you wait, then you wait and then you wait and then they miss the ball or they drop the ball. They don't, they don't do what they ought to do. So Peter says, be hospitable and no complaining. Be hospitable and no complaining because he knows that when you're hospitable, there will be situations where you want to complain and you sometimes there will be situations where you think it's your Christian duty to complain. So then Hebrews 13 tells us to show hospitality because you never know who it might be, who it might be that you're being kind to. That's Hebrews 13 too. The most inauspicious guest might be an angel. And when it isn't an angel, it turns out to have been Christ himself. Matthew 25, 40. Lord, when did we ever visit you in prison? Well, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Lord, when did we ever clothe you when you're cold? Lord, when did we ever do this? Well, you did, whatever you did to the least of these, the most, um, uh, the person who is not imposing at all, you did it, you gave a cup of cold water. Jesus says giving a cup of cold water for the sake of the Lord's name is not going to be forgotten in the day of judgment. So, it might be an angel, it might be Christ. It's never a nobody. It's never a nobody. And then in Philippians, we are warned against grumbles and disputes. Notice in Philippians it says, do all things without murmuring or disputing. Without murmurings or disputing. All things. And that all things would include hospitality. That all things includes the times when you have people over, when you give an invitation, when you extend yourself. So in Philippians, in, in the pursuit of all things, no grumbles, no disputes. Temptations which occur, again, in a community where hospitality is pursued and practiced. When when a group of people decide that they want to cultivate a culture of generosity, a culture of hospitality, a culture of kindness, do you know what's going to happen? There will be people who start free riding. When you start showing hospitality, when you start being generous, when we, if we successfully develop a culture where we want to overflow. We want to be kind. We want to extend. We want to show hospitality. There will be people who say, man, fat city. This is, this is where I want to park. This is, I'm going I'm to start sopping this up. I'm going to start taking advantage of this. And then all the people extending themselves have to be reminded by Peter, show hospitality without grumbling. Now, the reason I selected these three particular exhortations has to do with the larger context. And this is what ties our local situation together with our national and international situation. The larger context. Peter says that we are to be hospitable without grumbling, but what was the larger context? He was preparing his readers for persecution. He was preparing his readers for persecution. Their faith was going to be tried by fire. That's 1 Peter 1, 7. Your faith is going to be thrown into a furnace. Your faith is going to be tried by fire. Then in 1 Peter 2, 2, Christ suffered so that we might follow his example. So we might learn some tips from him on how to endure 
patiently when we suffer. They were going to encounter false accusations, Peter says. That's in 1 Peter 3.16. Discernment blogs would be set up and they would be reviled and dead-catted and all, all manner of ripe vegetables would be thrown in their general direction. You're going to encounter false accusations. And all of this is Peter's run-up to the exhortation, be hospitable and no whining. Be hospitable and no whining. What is a good preparation for persecution? What is a good preparation for an assault on the church? Being the church. Being the church, being involved in one another's lives is the best preparation for what they're going to want to do. What do they want to do? How, how can they manipulate you the, readily? They manipulate you readily by isolating you. That's what they want to do. They want you to go down in your basement and stay there. And after a year of that, you would believe pretty much anything, they say. All right, they want to isolate you. They want to separate you. They want to, they want to disconnect you. They want to pull you apart from your brothers and sisters. And one of the things that we want to do is pursue hospitality, friendship, koinonia fellowship with one another. So, Peter says, this, this, they're coming up on a fiery furnace, the people he's writing to, and he says, be hospitable, no whining. Then in Hebrews, in Hebrews, we're told to take strangers in. But again, what's the context? What's the context in the Hebrews exhortation? These people had undergone great afflictions. That's in Hebrews 10.32. They'd been reviled. That's in the next verse, Hebrews 10.33. And they'd had their property confiscated. Hebrews 10.34. He says elsewhere in the book that they had not yet uh, suffered. They had not uh, yet suffered to the shedding of blood. They had not yet gone, gotten to the final, ultimate martyrdom. But they'd gone through plenty. The people receiving the book of Hebrews had gone through plenty. They'd had their stuff taken. They were reviled. They were greatly afflicted. And then they are told, make sure you take in strangers. But he might be an FBI guy. Yeah. <laughs> What do you mean, taking strangers? He, you, and our reflex is, he, he might be an, an operative. He might be, he might be a bad guy, but he might be an angel. Might be Jesus. So do you think that they didn't have any informers and snitches 2,000 years ago? Do you think they didn't have turncoats back then? You think they didn't have traitors back then? Of course they did. And, but, but what we're told is this is a bad situation You've been through persecution. More persecution is likely. Make sure you entertain strangers. Make sure you don't quit being the church. If they want to make you stop being the church, you can't quit being the church voluntarily beforehand as a matter of protection. You are not going, you're not protecting yourself by ceasing that which they're trying to get you to stop. You're playing their game. So we must be the church regardless. We must be involved in one another's lives regardless. We must be in one another's homes regardless. Then in Philippians, it's the same kind of thing. Be blameless, be harmless, he says. No murmuring or disputing. But what had Paul said just a moment before? He says in Philippians 1.29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. When you suffer for the Lord's sake, that is a gift of God. Believing in Christ is a gift of God, and suffering for Christ is a gift of God. It's all from the hand of God. 
So when you refuse to murmur or, com or complain in the midst of hospitality or in the midst of a full stretch hospitality or in the midst of giving yourself away for others, when you refuse to complain and you're standing out from a wicked generation, that is God's preparation for you for the really hard time. This, this is what God is doing. This is how God works. So all three, in, in all three instances, you see this, do everything without grumbling or complaining, be hospitable, be hospitable. Um, the context, the run-up to that was persecution. Christ, Christian, when Christians live in community, the way the New Testament tells us to live in community, it is not possible for them to do this without incurring opposition. It's not possible to do because of the nature of the world. So, Let's consider the early church in Acts. What, what happened with them? Well, same thing. On the day of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were added to the church. Acts, Acts 2, 41. 3,000 souls, one day. Talk about logistical nightmare. Just, I mean, just managing the baptism. They baptized them all. Just managing the baptism. 3,000, one day. That's a logistical nightmare. And they didn't have any church government. <laughs> they, nothing, nothing was organized. And God said, here, 3,000. Later, as the gospel gained strength, and it was not that much, wasn't that uh, much later, as the gospel gained strength, there were about 5,000 more added. Acts 4.4. 4. So we're four chapters into the book of Acts, and we've got 8,000 saints and no organization. Remember that Jerusalem is a festival city. Jerusalem is the kind of town, and, and we have, we have uh, towns that way. We have cities that function that way. Have, we have cities that have a large permanent population. We have towns that have a small permanent population. We have towns that can flex according to uh, when the football game is or when the, um, when the festival is. Jerusalem was that kind of town. Everybody came, everybody flooded into Jerusalem for Pentecost. And then God poured out the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 people were converted, and a bunch of them stayed. They're supposed to go home, but a bunch of them stayed. And so you have all these people from all over, and they're now permanent or semi-permanent residents of Jerusalem, and we don't have the infrastructure. We're, we're not organized. What do we do? This process continued, and it started to cause problems because people were involved. People were involved, and this is what happened. In Acts 6, so we see Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 6. So Acts 2, 3,000. Acts 4, we have 8,000. Acts 6, we have problems. And in those days, this is verse 1, and in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there's, there's the problem, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now, just a quick interpretation here. The Grecians are not Greeks here. They are Greek-speaking Jews. So you have the Aramaic-speaking Jews who lived in Palestine, who lived in uh, Jerusalem and Judea. Those were the Aramaic-speaking, the, the Hebrews. And then you had the Hellenists, who were the Greek-speaking Jews from the dispersion. These are the out-of-towners. These are the people who came for Pentecost, a bunch of them got saved and stayed. 
And so the, the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the distribution. Now, this was clearly, plain by the response, you can plainly see that none of this was on purpose. They weren't neglecting the Hellenistic widows on purpose. It was simply a function of there's a lot going on here that we're dealing with thousands of people, and nobody was really in charge of this when it started. Well, the apostles were in charge of it, but they weren't in charge of it in any practical flowchart way. So, what happened? The apostles responded to this challenge in two ways. The first is that they refused to abandon their post. They refused to abandon prayer and the preaching of the word, the ministry of the word, because that was the driving engine for everything else. They, they didn't say, well, hey, this car would be a lot lighter if we took the engine out. Uh, that's true. The car would be a lot lighter if you take the engine out, but then it can't drive. Right? So the ministry of the word, the prayer, what the, what the apostles were doing had to remain central. They, they said, we're not going to abandon the ministry of the word. We're not going to abandon our prayer for the saints. But <coughs> we do have to take care of this problem. So they made a judicious set of ordinations setting aside godly deacons to address the problem. That's what they did in Acts uh, 6, verse 3. Now, here's the thing. Uh, they, they, they told the congregation to pick seven men, and they picked them. And then the apostles, the existing gov- governing authorities, laid their hands on the deacons and ordained them to this ministry. The people picked the people who were... The, the, the people picked the... Uh, the men who were going to serve them. Then the apostles ordained the men who were going to serve them. And then they began ministering. They began distributing the food and whatnot. Two of them, well, actually, all seven of them had, it's uh, striking, all seven of them had Greek names, right? They had Greek names. So the people who were ordained to look out for the Hellenistic widows to make sure that it was done fairly were, uh, were, um, had, were Hellenists themselves, and two of them, Philip and Stephen, become great, very powerful preachers and teachers in their own right. But notice the position they were appointed to. What the, the position they were appointed to initially was hospitality, taking care of people, making sure that, the, that these widows were not overlooked. And all of this is wonderful preparation for what was to come. Acts 2, 3,000. Acts 4, 8,000. Acts 6, internal problems arise, and then the apostles deal with the internal problems appropriately, and they are taking care of their own people. They're being kind to one another. And then what happens in Acts chapter 8? In Acts 8, 1, it says this, or it will say this when I get there. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at, the, at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So Stephen, um, I think you could make a strong argument that Stephen was, if I had to make a list of the top five most influential Christians in church history, Stephen would be on the list. And Stephen was on the list not because he takes up that many chapters. You know, David in the Old Testament takes up way more many chapters, and Paul takes up a lot of chapters, and there are other characters in the New Testament who take, all, 
take up a lot of a lot more space than Stephen does. Stephen is picked as a deacon to wait on tables in chapter six, and within the space of two chapters, he's killed. And then he's he's gone. But so why would I pick him as one of the top five most influential Christians who ever lived? Well, it says that he in his short stint in his short time in scriptural history, he was the first person who articulated what was going on with the new covenant and the formation of the Christian church. God doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands. That's not, that's not what's going on here. When he gives his speech to the Sanhedrin before he's executed, uh, many people just read that speech glibly, saying, well, he just gives sort of a history lesson of Israel and then concludes by calling them all names, and, and no wonder they killed him. Um, well, no, that's not what's going on. Because they were, these people were the curators. They were the, they were the people running the museum, the mausoleum of God's death. All right, this, is, this is the temple. We've got God in a box. And we, we, we've got an economic financial operation here that's a pretty sweet deal. And he, along come, Jesus attacked it directly when he, when he cleansed the temple, turned turned over all the tables. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. The first follower of Christ who understood what Jesus was up to and who articulated it publicly was Stephen. God doesn't dwell in houses made with human hands. And when he goes through the history of Israel, what does he say? He says, God appeared to Moses. Where, where did he do that? In Midian, not in the Holy Land. Right? Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, but God was with him. Where? Egypt. Stephen says, God appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia. What's God doing in Mesopotamia? Why is God in Mesopotamia? Why, why is God in Egypt? Why is, why is he in Midian? Well, because God doesn't dwell in houses made with human hands. Right? So Stephen grasped the big picture. Stephen got the big picture. And... He got into a debate with some certain Jews from Cilicia. Well, they were called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. They were from various places, but one of the places where they were from was Cilicia. That was a Roman province. The chief city of that province was Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus. Saul is from Tarsus. And Saul shows up for the very first time. It says, uh, right when he's killed, he says, uh, and Saul was consenting unto his death. So they, um, in Jewish law, if you testified against somebody uh, in a capital crime, the witness had to participate in the execution. So the men throwing the rocks were the men who witnessed against Stephen. But it says that they were suborned witnesses. They were, they were brought in to lie. So these are liars. They're liars, and they're brought in to kill Stephen. And Saul makes his first appearance holding their coats while they throw the rocks. They brought in liars to throw the rocks, and Saul was holding their coats, and then right after, he, right after this in chapter 8, he takes off on a tear going after the uh, church, persecuting the church. Now, what's going on? You can't, you can't read through Paul's letters. You can't read an account of Paul's life without coming to the conclusion that Paul was a world-class genius. He was a world-class genius. He was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. And he also tells us at the end of his life, in the pastorals, he says, I was a blasphemer. I was an insolent man, arrogant. He said, I was, he was brilliant, 
and he was zealous for the law. He was zealous for the law. He was, he was one wound tight guy. He was, he was zealous. He was eager. He was arrogant. He was prideful, and he was brilliant. And it says that the men from the synagogue of the freedmen couldn't withstand Stephen, a table waiter from the church, the guy, the deacon, the deacon guy, who's who's what's his job description? His job description is give, giving bread to the widows. He shows up and he rolls all their socks down and he pulls their togas over their heads. And now, if there's one thing that you can tell about brilliant, unregenerate, brilliant men, is they don't like that. <laughs> they take it ill. So by the time by the time Paul is headed off to the Damascus headed off to Damascus with orders to arrest Christians. I said he was wound tight earlier. He was really wound tight. Because a brilliant man knows that killing a man is not the same thing as answering him. Killing a man, he knows that that had to rankle. And it was as though Stephen, it was like a relay race. Stephen runs just one lap in this relay race. And, and, the, and the message is the, the gospel is for all nations God is not locked in a box here in Jerusalem. The message is the universality of the gospel, the universality of grace. God is being kind to our planet. The first person to get that is Stephen. And he grabs that baton and he starts running with it and they kill him. One lap and they kill him. And the baton clatters to the ground. And the next person to pick it up in the providence and goodness of God was Saul of Tarsus. And he takes off with it. And he changed the world. He changed the world. Why? Because Stephen got to him, right? Stephen got to him, and Stephen got to him in ways that, and you might say, well, what's such promise? Such, Stephen has such promise. Why was it cut short? It wasn't cut short. It, it fulfilled God's purpose for his life perfectly. So all of this is good preparation. Acts 2, 3,000. Acts 4, 8,000. Acts 6, you have the, the trouble, internal trouble, and then you have the appointment of the deacons, and then a, and then a great persecution breaks out against the church. And then in Acts 9, and Saul, look at Acts 9 begins, verse 1, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. Paul is breathing murder. He hates these people. He just hates them. Now, what was good preparation? Giving bread to widows. What's the, what do you do to prepare for that? What did, what did the church do to prepare for what's going to happen to them? Their mercy ministry, their kindness to one another, their involvement in one another's life. All of this was good and godly preparation for what was to come. Now, because of the cultural disarray around us in many places all around the world, and because God has been so kind to us here, hundreds of people have moved here. Hundreds of perhaps you've noticed it. Uh, over the last year and a half, maybe five, five, six hundred people have moved here. All the indications are that hundreds more are on the way. So what does it mean? Well, it means that there are going to be multiple opportunities to be hospitable without grumbling. That's, that's the first thing it means. And those opportunities to be hospitable without grumbling will not be distractions from the preparations that we need to be making. Those are the preparations that we need to be making. Second, it also means that it's quite possible that the trouble that we see elsewhere is headed 
our way. Thus far, we've been living in the land of Goshen. Thus far, we've been protected. Thus far, as far as local things are concerned, we, we've never had it so good. As I said before, we've been living in Sherwood Forest. We've been largely untouched by the, by the global insanity. But trouble could be headed our way. We have no guarantees that it won't happen. And we do have the assurance of these passages that being kind to strangers is a very good way to prepare in case it does come our way. When you say, what can I do? Things look grim. What can I do? Most of you here don't know most of you here. Right? Isn't that a fair statement? Most of you here don't know most of you here. And when you, if that's the case, and you ask, what can I do? What can I do in a room full of strangers? Well, take a stranger. Take a stranger in. We have to understand that God does great collective things by means of countless tiny things. God does great collective things by means of countless tiny things. No one raindrop feels responsible for the ocean, but each one is. Without the, without the drops, we have no ocean. No one raindrop feels responsible for it, but each one is. And this is how God works. And we want to say, well, I don't want to participate in this until... I can organize in my mind how this is all going to work. I want to organize the raindrops. But you're not big enough. You're not wise enough. The ocean is God's responsibility. Being the right kind of raindrop is your responsibility. What does God want you and your raindrop to do? He wants you to fall this way. He wants you to behave in this way. And what the water does collectively is God's business. God is the one who's going to see to it that the earth is as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this is not going to be as a result of any one raindrop taking over his prerogative as God, telling the ocean what to do. What, we, what we're supposed to do is our own responsibility. What duty is in front of us? Now, koinonia fellowship is a great grace of the Holy Spirit. And we certainly have that blessing here. We do have that blessing in this community. But take care that you don't confuse it with other things. It's not the same thing as friendship, for example. Jesus loved his disciples. He loved them all, protected them all. John 17, 12. Jesus laid down his life for his disciples. But he also had Peter, James, and John as closer friends. So you have the, the great mass of people following Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Out of them, you had 70. There were 70 followers of Christ. Christ picked 12 out of the 70. And then he picked three out of the 12, Peter, James, and John. And then we're told in a number of places that John, among those three, John was the Lord's best friend, John 13, 23. Jesus had a best friend. That meant the others weren't. And his friendship with John had nothing to do with whether he loved the others appropriately. He loves all his followers perfectly. You, so don't confuse hospitality and the work of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit, as a means of trolling for friends. All right, you, you, a friendship is a different thing than Christian fellowship. You're brothers and sisters. As brothers and sisters, you come together, you sing together, you take the Lord's Supper together, you sit under the Word together, and as you take the bread and break the bread and pass it along, as you break the bread, as you receive the broken bread, you're saying, I lay down my life for others. Everyone here should be willing to lay down our life for anyone here. That's what we're called to do. But friendship, being close to one person, is not a violation of that. 
being close to one person, having a circle of friends is not a violation of that. Now, if you had a circle of friends and nobody else ever could get a word in, that's a click. That's not a circle of friends. So circles of friends are lawful, but they should enable you and equip you to be giving to others in a general way. If nobody can ever break in, in any, at any level, then that is a click, not a friendship. But the temptation for outsiders is to call anything that, they, that they're not part of a click. So make sure that you're loving, that you're doing what the Lord, that you're not grumbling, that you're not murmuring or complaining about any of this. So at the conclusion of this service, Christ invites you to sit down at his table And this is a glorious kindness. One of the things that it teaches us to do is this. When it comes time for us to set our tables, we should be hungry for opportunities to invite Christ to sit down at our tables. He invites us to his table, so we partake at his table. We sit down at his table. He invites us. He sits at the head of his table, and he feeds us at his table. This should make us want to reciprocate. We want Christ to come to our table. But, and that's, that's a good impulse, you should want Christ to come to your table. But he travels incognito, remember? You may not recognize him until he takes the loaf from you, says grace over it, and breaks the bread. That's what happened to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 30 and 31. And you might not even recognize him then. You might not realize any of this until the last day. And here's why. Here, in the worship of God... This is the city on the hill. This is a banquet where there's a, there's a name card at every place. Everybody's known. This is the Lord's table. We sing, uh, we sing to God the Father in the name of Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. We preach the gospel of Jesus. We commemorate his death with the breaking of the bread, which represents his body. The wine represents his blood. It's all about Jesus. This is, there's no ambiguity about what this is. This is a Christian worship service. And as a Christian worship service, we are coming and sitting down at Christ's table. We don't come here in disguise. We don't come here disguised or under a false name. You, we, we come here under our baptized Christian names, and he receives us as our Lord. Everything is open. But when he comes to our house, it's a little different. When he comes to our house... His identity is not known and declared the way it is here. When he comes to your house, he often comes in the disguise of a nuisance, cloaked as an irritation, camouflaged as an interruption. <laughs> That's, I'm telling you beforehand, so you know. <laughs> and you know what? It doesn't matter how many times beforehand someone tells you, yeah, I've heard this a hundred times, and I still fall for it every time. It's, a, it's an interruption. I was, I, Lord, I had, I had plans for this morning, and it was so important that I finished these plans. And God says, to you, it was important. Is it important to me? No, because I'm going to send Jesus the interruption. I'm going to send, I'm going to send Christ the nuisance. You say, that's, that, that sounds, doesn't sound very reverent to say Christ is a nuisance. Well, every neighbor that you think is a nuisance, every brother or sister is a, that you think is a nuisance, every phone call that you think is a nuisance, that's Jesus, right? Think about it this way. When Jesus, if Jesus came to your front door undisguised and he said, I'd like to spend the morning with you, and you looked out and you saw it was Jesus and you answered the door, 
You would invite him in. You would be the most gracious host ever. And by the end of the morning, he would go away thinking you were a pretty good Christian. <laughs> except, except that he's God and he, he knows that's not true. <laughs> so he wants to know how you're really doing. He wants to know how you're really doing. And so what he does is he shows up in the form of a person who doesn't send a thank you note. He shows up in the, in the form of a person who doesn't call first. He shows up in the form of people who take things for granted. And we, and, and you're serving this person and you want to serve them and you go out in the kitchen you, to get the next dish, but you're also trying to get some grace and you're praying for grace in the kitchen and you're not getting, you, not getting any and you go back out and you're gutting it out. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's how God works. That's how God works. Now, this is the glory. This is the very best preparation for anything gnarly that might be coming our way. Anything gnarly that might be coming our way is we want to be together. We want to be the church. And that means we must be in one another's lives. We must be at one another's tables. We must be in one another's homes. We must be the church. And if we are, we're going to have a molecular strength. The people coming after us are going to, are going to want to fragment us. Want to, they're going to want to scatter us. They want to isolate you. You must not allow yourself to be isolated. And that means you must love your God and love your people. Love God and love your people. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for what you've given to us in and through your word. I pray you'd help us all to see the places where we can plug this in and make it applicable to our situations. Father, we know that we don't deserve to ask for this, but we do anyway because we're, we're bold and we ask in the name of Jesus. Father, as we think about these things, as we pray about them, we would lift up to you the words that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Father, in you we live and move and have our being. From you we have all things. Let us not pretend by our conduct that we have not received from you life itself. Be pleased now to receive back from us our tithes and offerings as representation of our whole selves. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. This meal we partake of is the victor's feast, and we are welcome to it, and that is odd. In 2 Samuel 8, we read of David's military conquests over the surrounding enemies of Israel, and then directly after, in chapter 9, we read of his kindness to Mephibosheth, son of his friend Jonathan. David sends messengers to seek out any descendant of Saul in order that he may be kind to him. So the messengers go and they find Mephibosheth and they bring him to David. And David tells him that he now has a standing invitation to dinner at the king's place that his name card will be a permanent fixture. And Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, David's enemy, is flummoxed. But our position at this feast is stranger than Mephibosheth's at David's. This is the victor's feast, but we were on the other side. We are among those whom Christ conquered. Remember, no one seeks after God. We were rebels and enemies, dead in our sins. But Christ sought us out, 
laid waste our pride, vanquished our tyrannical master, and carried us off. So what exactly are we doing with our names on the guest list for the victory feast? Well, that's the master's business. But our business is twofold. First, we partake of his generosity with joyous gratitude. Christ has conquered and we are his. And he feeds us not only with his own hands, but he feeds us himself. And then second, our business is to glory in our humiliation. As Mephibosheth said to David, what is thy servant that thou shouldst look upon such a dead dog as I am? Christ has saved us by his mercy and because of nothing we have done or refrained from doing. And all who are saved are saved to the fullest. So as you pass the bread and the wine to one another, remember with reverent gladness that the same mercy given to you was given to your brothers and your sisters. And rejoice together and hold your heads high in humility and gratitude and come in faith and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this, lo simply love one another, and don't think of it as though God's running a cosmic lottery and you, you know, one in a billion gets the Christ ticket and you won the lottery, you were nice to him. Uh, no, it's very open, God is playing fair with this, straight up the middle, they're all winning tickets. Every last one, everyone you meet, everyone you deal with, everyone is counted as Christ. As in so much as you did it for the least of these, you did it unto me. And so go with believing hearts with the benediction of your God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.